Well, welcome this morning. Um, sorry if you came early last Sunday and found that I was still in Minneapolis. Uh, that was that was no fun. Um, but today we actually hopefully get to finish the book of Revelation. Uh, and then as we approach the new year, we're going to begin our uh, new serve, uh, a new series in the book of Proverbs, um, which I've been uh, preparing ferociously. Uh, there is there is much to say about the Spirit of God uh, throughout Scripture, and as we close out the entire book, um, we will uh, we will see how apt it is uh, to finish off there. So join me in Revelation fourteen, if you could please. When we uh, come to these passages. Uh, again, anytime you're in the book of Revelation, you're going to be dealing with uh, imagery, you're going to be dealing with uh, expressions, some things that are um, clear, some things that are not clear. Uh, that's on purpose. Uh, prophecies and apocalypse, uh, both of which have um, distinctive elements to them, when they mix together, which the book of Revelation is, and it states so in the first verses that this is both an apocalypse which is trying to reveal heaven's side of all of the stuff that's going on earth and prophecy, which is trying to unfold the reality of this world. Um, many things which have happened, continue to happen and will continue to happen. And obviously where it ends up with is expressing the eternal state. Um, many are those who try to explain absolutely everything in this book. That is just simply not possible. Uh, if there are sections of this, which everyone agrees, that are still future, then we've got a lot of uh, things that we just are not clear about. Um, but we also have a lot of things that we are clear about. Uh, and I want to be really clear. I am not trying to explain the book of Revelation today. Uh, the book of Revelation is enormously complex and requires years of its own study. But we are here for the references to the Holy Spirit because his role is very clear, especially as you have already gone through the entirety of scripture. And then you come here and you see that he has uh, mentioned a bunch right at the beginning. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Stay faithful, endure to the end, stay faithful no matter what comes your way. All of these things are in complete unison with Christ. All of that Christ does is in complete unison with the Father, uh, and we see it all spell out. And then the Spirit of God is not mentioned for 10 chapters. That's not to, don't bring any conclusions out of that. I'm just saying, that's why we're zooming ahead to chapter 14, because it's the next time that he's mentioned. And so we're just going to stick with the explicit mentions, because I don't want to add to the theories uh, that are swirling around the book of Revelation. Uh, someday, if you want to know what my thoughts are on the book of Revelation, you can take me to lunch, and we will talk about all of that. Um, today, however, I want you to find yourself in Revelation 14 and see... One of those less than a handful of places in scripture where the spirit audibly speaks out and enjoins himself to the conversation that is going on. It is found in Revelation 14. We will work our way up to it, but it is verse 13 that we're working up to. But I want you to see uh, from verse 6, I want you to see this context. This is the message of the three angels. Uh, if you're not familiar with the message of the three angels, you can read Revelation this week and have perfect clarity. Verse 6. Revelation 14. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, 
to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Verse 7. He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory. Does anyone know how to shut off the uh, the hall speakers? Do you guys know how to do that? There is a thing with glowing blue stuff behind the um, behind one of the laptops. It just has a rocker switch. Just switch it off. It's a glowing blue thing. It's a glowing blue amp. It shouldn't be on during practice. Um, where did I just leave off? Oh, yes, verse 7. He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, thank you, a third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Now, these three angels have a remarkable message to give to the world. The first one is it's flying through. Um, not only is preaching the eternal gospel, he is doing so to everyone. Every tribe, nation, tongue, people. There is no limit to the distance that this, uh, this proclamation goes. Now, I'm going to save you from uh, the, all of the interpretations that flow through this, time-wise, literal, all that kind of stuff, and just go with the message being delivered, Okay. What is the message of the first angel? Fear God and give him glory. Why? Because at this point, the hour of his judgment is coming upon the world. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, this is actually quite fascinating because, and there is a reason why the spirit of God is involved here, I would argue. When you see the sea and the springs of water, when you see the new heavens and new earth, what is the one part of the creation that will not exist in that new heavens and new earth? And it's stated explicitly. Does any of you know? The sea is gone. Now, whether that's literal or imagery, who knows? But what we do know is that it's stated explicitly that God at first created the heavens and the earth and the sea, and then... Several chapters later, we have the new heavens and new earth. There was no more sea. Anyone theorize as to why such imagery should it be there or such literal should it be real would be included? Anyone know what the sea represents? Yeah. Chaos, darkness, and disorder. Unpredictable. The reality of the sea carries with it this, this almost primordial 
imagine if you will you're you're living in an ancient world you don't know what the sea floor looks like nobody can dive down there there's no imaging of it or anything the sea just is unknown to you you know, a whale could be 10 feet below you you have no idea right this kind of this kind of nervousness about it and so when when that settles into your heart and you understand that there was actually great fear of the sea there were several songs about it uh, things like this where may god protect those who are on it uh, all that kind of stuff the places where god made leviathan to play in it and all of these sea creatures and there's there's this whole worldview that surrounds the sea uh this being written into that culture again imagery literal i'm not here to decide which one because honestly i'm not convinced but one thing is sure that unpredictable, terrifying part of creation that has been a part of this creation will no longer be unpredictable and terrifying. But here, why do we fear God and give him glory? He has his judgment and he is coming into the world and he's the one that made all of this. Imagine resting in the God who made the most unpredictable, terrifying thing in the world. Right? His perspective and his call on things may look chaotic. It may look crazy. In fact, it may look completely countercultural no matter where you live. And yet, this is still the God who made, to our perspective, the unpredictable and the terrifying. Instead, we should fear him more than all of that. How about the second angel? What about those cultures that come into this world and continually rule it? and impose themselves upon the people of God, impose themselves upon the world, and insist upon their own morality in their own way. What does the second angel say to them? Verse 8. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, what you're going to see throughout all of this is that the role of Babylon shows up all over the place. Now, Babylon, in the days of the writing of the book of Revelation, was ruins. It was not a city anymore. Obviously, imagery. Babylon itself as a city has not existed, but the imagery is very clear. One of the things that we saw in the overview here, let me put it up on the screen again, is the relationship of Babylon to everything in the world. Whatever strongest empires in the world, even if it starts out well, eventually becomes drunk on itself and takes over everything and imposes itself on everyone. Because if you see yourself as in charge of the world, when you are not, you will have to act like God. And the problem is when sinful humans act like God, they do so in very predictable ways, especially as empires. Every single one of them does it. At one point in the West, the Western church did it. They acted like they were God. This would be found in the late medieval era where they were arguing about the Pope being in charge of even kings. And when the church started acting like that, and then there's many countries, I would argue we are currently living in that. The reality is that, that the, the powers of the world always follow a predictable pattern. Always. If they start out well, start out good intentioned, that does well, and then they get to the top of the world, and then what happens? Pride sets in. 
we're on top of the world, we're in charge of the world, we can do what we will, we can intend things, we can force things. What happens then when empires act like gods? They fall every single time, every single time. And so rather than looking at the book of Revelation, you will see a lot of people that will look at this and go, oh, well, obviously, we're, you know, we're living in a time that's very similar to this, and people think that it's just a one-time reference. This has happened dozens of times in history. We just happen to be living in the most recent iteration, as far as I'm aware. What's the end of those cultures? What's the end of those worlds? They fall. They implode. And God ensures that they do, because why? What is it that the king of Babylon himself learned? He wrote it in Daniel 4. I think it's one of the most apt descriptions of it. Those who are proud, he is able to humble. And he ensures that he does. Either we humble ourselves or we will be humbled. That's just kind of the relationship that we all have. What about the third angel? Verse 9. Another angel, a third, this is verse 8. Or no, verse 9, what am I saying? I followed him saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. Now, let me stop there for a second. Much concern has been made over the mark of the beast and all this kind of stuff. It is not complex. And I'm very grateful for those who were making this because they stated it just right. This is not something you can accidentally take. It is not a microchip. It is not any of that. The whole point is to where is your allegiance when the empire falls? Is it to the Lord or is it to the comforts that your empire promises? What about when it sets itself up against the Lord? What are you going to do? Where does your allegiance lie? It is a direct reference to the Shema. To set the law of the Lord in front of your eyes, write it on the back of your hands, put it as and over your doorpost, I mean, it's right out of Deuteronomy 6. Remind yourself of the law of the Lord everywhere you go. The Lord is one. You shall love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the passage. And here we have the exact opposite of that. Instead of devoting yourself to complete allegiance to the Lord, instead we devote ourselves to complete allegiance to Babylon, the empire in which we live. Now, there are times when an empire is beginning that you can actually have an empire that's largely aligned with the way of the Lord. And so that line between them is really fuzzy in the beginning. But once they become in charge of the world, that line gets really called into focus to the point that there is no accidental taking the mark of the beast. There is no such accident like that. The reality is it reveals hearts. By the time an empire becomes so full of itself and so drunk on its own self there's not a single christian that would actually follow it not a true one and so if you're worried about accidentally taking the mark of the beast don't worry about that what does he connect it to verse 12 here is a call for the endurance of the saints those who keep the commandments of god and their faith in jesus that is our focus throughout the whole thing what if what if following Christ costs us dearly in whatever empire we happen to live. What if they say, give us all your scriptures, as they did to the early church of the, uh, of the early fourth century, give us your scriptures, we will burn them, we will do away with them. If you don't, we will burn you and do away with you. 
What do we do? What do we do when assembling together, we are penalized financially? Boy, we'll hit it right where it hurts, right? What if it, what if it costs us? What if we lose our jobs? This type of stuff has happened in many empires throughout history. It will happen again, and then it will reset, and then it will happen again. And this is why I always say the book of Revelation is about enduring to the end as suffering saints. It is constantly showing us it doesn't matter what era of history you live in, this type of stuff will be occurring somewhere. And the call is not to overcome them. It's not to get sharper sticks or bigger calibers. It is to endure to the end, even if it means the end of our life. Said, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Now that is not initially sounding like a very victorious message. <laughs> Endure to the end. Oh, great. What's the victorious end? Death. Blessed are you though. What? And so the spirit comes in and gives his only audible uh, section in the book of Revelation up to this point. He only says two things in the entire book of Revelation. This is one of them. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. In other words, death is not some chaotic, unpredictable place. Death for the Christian, even in martyrdom, is a place of rest. We are no longer laboring. We will no longer suffer. Not to say that death is somehow our friend, but that the Lord through death is victorious, the same way he did with Christ. Death was the path of victory. The Spirit says the same thing here. Blessed are they. Happy are they. Why? Because they're resting. And their deeds follow them. You will not be forgotten. You will be remembered. You will be resurrected. And you will set your feet on the ground again. Turn to chapter 17. We have two pictures, one here and one in chapter 21. Two pictures that take from the habit of Ezekiel. Remember when you're back in the book of Ezekiel and you had this, uh, this picture, the same thing that John includes at the beginning of the book of Revelation, where he was in the spirit on the Lord's day and then all of this stuff happened. And then he found himself in the spirit up in heaven. And now again, we have the same type of reference, but now we have John being carried away in the spirit and brought and shown things about the world. Uh, this is not a major section or major reference to the spirit, but it is a callback to the uh, prophet Ezekiel, which makes this an important connection to the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, I want you to see it uh, as we pass by. Uh, we'll just start in verse one there, chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And again, the pictures of sexual immorality throughout the book of Revelation is a catch-all for everything. It is, it is a description um, of Babylon as the great prostitute and everything that a prostitute does in this picture is endemic of the entire thing that the empire is doing. So it's not just for that sin. It is, it is the catch all of everything. And so the response here, verse three, 
He carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now, you can... You can read the rest of this. I'm just going to finish off with the next uh, next verse. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Here, we have direct reference to the fact that the empire of the world, no matter where it is, eventually ends up as the enemies of the cross. Always. Always. They always do. You will find it in every culture that rises to the power of the world, every empire. Rome was doing the same thing. Now, Rome was only doing it in certain little spots and pieces. Eventually, by the end of the 3rd century, in the beginning of the 4th century, they were persecuting Christians everywhere in the empire, throughout. And then, strangest of all things, one of the emperors becomes a Christian. And then the church is married and wedded to that empire. And then, throughout the medieval era, the church became that. The reality is there is nothing we can do to save the empires. This is what sin does when it gets in charge of the world. This is what power hungriness does. It will always hate those that remind them of God. Think about the reality. If we are claiming to be standing in the place of God, arbiters of morality and of judgment. And then there's somebody in our midst that says instead, uh, God is actually the arbiter of morality and judgment. They are immediately the enemies of an empire claiming to hold the status of God. Instantly. It's why it is the way it works. Ironically, it is in following the humility of Christ that really drives nuts those who are in the empire. Think of those who were influencing Nebuchadnezzar uh, and finding Daniel. What, what made them so livid? Daniel prayed. He wasn't out there protesting. He wasn't out there trying to make a difference. Nope. He just prayed to his God. The wrong God. What was, what, was the, what was the decree made? He should be praying only to you. It's the same setup. It's the same structure. You will see it. Gee, we had it just now. Someone was arrested in Britain because they were praying outside of an abortion clinic. Silently. Because the reality is, eventually, the empires cannot take humble resistance. They would, they, would almost, they would almost laud armed resistance. In fact, the Roman Empire, that was one of the reasons why they, they at least respected Jewish people. And this was one of the big differences they made between Jews and Christians, is Jews fight back. Christians don't. It was a really weird thing for them. And they lost full respect for them. They say, if you don't value your own life, why should I? That's how it eventually happens. 
So John is carried away in the spirit to see the outcome of God's judgment. I want you to turn to Revelation 21. And I want you to see John then carried away and seeing the outcome of God's salvation. Chapter 21, verse 9. Oh, you're able to find a Bible? Revelation 21, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now stop for a second. Who, who's the bride? The church. Thank you very much. He carried me away in the spirit. This is the antithesis of chapter 17 to a great and high mountain. Now, remember, in chapter 17, what are we looking at? We're also looking at a picture of a woman, prostitute. Here, we're looking at bride. Two direct opposites. The spirit is carrying away John to see. First, look at this. This is a collection of people from all over the world that belong to Babylon through all of his conquering. Now we come and see the bride, the bride of the lamb, which he has conquered through his sacrificial death and has brought them salvation. Verse 10, he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, at a great high wall and 12 gates and, the tw uh, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. The south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Stop right there. What are the foundations of this bride, this city, if you will? Where are all the gates and all the foundations from? Old covenant and new covenant all mixed together. You have the 12 tribes of Israel. You have the 12 apostles. The, the picture is bringing together all of the promises of God into one place. All of those from the Garden of Eden all the way to the end of the world that have come to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, having known his name, or through trust in the God of Israel, having known his name and reputation as well. Again, coming to here and trying to get literal aspects out of an apocalyptic picture is just always a mistake. The whole point here is to say Babylon is not literally a prostitute, nor is the church literally a woman or a city dressed in heaven. These are prophetic imageries meant to show heaven's opinion about the world. There's only two sides. We live in a time of great nuance. We want to say that there's a whole spectrum of there's those who follow the Lord and you know they're you know really hard headed about it. those who really love the world and then people that want to just say there's a bunch of squish in the middle. God says no. There's two women, the great prostitute and the bride of the lamb. That's it. And the Spirit carries John to both, and he says there is no other place. Either you are a saint who is going to endure to the end, which if you live in a time of great empire control that may well cost you your life. Or you can capitulate to the world. And you can, instead of suffering their wrath, you can suffer the wrath of the Lamb. Either we suffer now and rest later, or we rest now and suffer later. See the difference? That is the comparison being made. 
John, having written the gospel, said the exact same thing. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. A friend of the Lord has overcome the world. Why? Because Christ has overcome the world, and he has made us more than conquerors. That is not because we go out and wield the sword. No, instead, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Well, how did Jesus conquer the world? What about when one of his disciples took out the sword and cut off the, 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 the guard of the, the, cut off the ear of the guard of the high priest? What did Jesus say? Put away the sword. If you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. What's the further implication? If you live by the lamb, you will die in the lamb. None of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. All throughout scripture, these pictures and these images are coming to its conclusion. The spirit is right there with both of them. And here's one of the craziest things. Turn to the last paragraphs of the Bible. Revelation 22. Let's start in verse 12. Eh. We got time. Let's start in verse 6. Let's start in verse 1. Genesis chapter 1. No. <laughs> Revelation 22, verse 1. We do need to read this whole chapter just to get what it is the spirit and the bride are both unifying together here at the close of scripture. 22, we're going to read the whole chapter and I'll just stop us along the way. Verse one, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Again, we're talking about a literal city. We're talking about the church. I will argue this is the church. This is that the, the very life that flows and emanates from the Lord is present in all of his people. You want to take a literal thing? That's perfectly fine. It's great. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the... All of a sudden we have the tree of life again. It was mentioned at the beginning of the book of Revelation. It is now mentioned here. Before this, it was mentioned in Genesis. We're taking that imagery. Now, again, do I believe there's a literal tree of life in the Garden of Eden that was a literal place with a literal uh, Adam and Eve? Absolutely. And so it would stand to reason that whatever that tree was and whatever it did is present here on a literal earth, a literal tree. I, and here's, here's where I think when, when we, we argue whether it's imagery or whether it's uh, literal, I would say it is both because we are dealing with a place where imagery and literality overlap. This is a place where heaven and earth are one. So I would actually argue both are correct. Does God rule in our life? Yes. Does God have a literal throne? Yeah. Especially here. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There, there is the complete allegiance. We belong. Night. 
that would be, yeah, that would be the, the antithesis of that. Yes, we belong to the Lord rather than Babylon. Yep. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Now, again, imagery, literal? Yes, I would argue both. Yes, sir. But they will see his face. Is that reference to God? Or yes, the Father. The thing that nobody has ever been able to do. The thing Moses asked for. The thing Adam and Eve hid from. No man shall see my face and live. It means that whatever life we have is not natural to us. It is something gifted to us. Something that, as, um, as Peter actually says in 1 Peter chapter 1, things that angels desire to look into. Because even they, in the book of Revelation, hide their faces from the from the face of the lamb. You have the four living creatures that surround, not the face of the lamb, the face of the, uh, the father. You have the four living creatures that surround the throne of God, blocking out so that nobody can see him. Here, we have direct reference to that those who has their faith in Christ will actually see the face of God. This, this, is, this is the place where, again, so much imagery is coming to close. If, if this were... If this were a, a TV series, they are wrapping up every loose end. It is absolutely incredible. Because in another place in scripture, we are referred to the fact that one day we will be like God, for we will see him as he is. No man has seen God as he is. Moses saw the pre-incarnate, veiled in flesh, son of God in the tent of meeting, and there himself, his own face shone for 40 days. Here we have, we have no need of even the sun or lamp or light because the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Now, soon take place is on eternity's time scale. 2,000 years is basically nothing. To remind you again of the <coughs> of the Apostle Peter, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slowness, but instead is long-suffering towards us. Now Jesus comes in. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now John signs it. I, John, am the one who heard and saw all these things. And when I heard and I saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. I will include Mary and the saints and everyone else in that. Verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel... The very close of the book of Daniel, Daniel's like, um, can you tell me what the end of the world will be like? Because all I can see is that you reference to me, he says to the angel there, he says, you told me that um, all of these things will happen. I want to know about it. And the angel says, seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Go your way. You will live out your years and you will die. Men must go to and fro and knowledge increase and then the end will come. That is how the book of Daniel closes out. And the angel just basically says, none of your business. Seal up the words of the prophecy. 
And here, what is John told? It's all yours business. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Why? Because the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Why is the time near? Because this is a description, everything, of what the church will have to endure throughout its life here on this earth, while we are mixed in the field of God, wheat and tares. Why not come in and just take all of the weeds out of this field? It'll uproot the wheat. Jesus mentioned this directly in his expressions about all of this. We are always a mixed group in this world until the end. So let the evildoers still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. If they want to follow and align themselves with Babylon, just let them. Give them the gospel, but you cannot control the outcomes. Verse 12, behold, I am coming soon. Jesus says, I am bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Jehovah's Witnesses take notice. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. Arians take notice. If you're not familiar, that's not consistent with what either of those groups claim. Jesus has always been and always will be first and last, beginning and end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. That is everything. What is the implication? If you are in Christ, these will not be your loves. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root of the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And here again, the spirit speaks audibly. The spirit and the bride both let out a cry. Come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Again, Isaiah 55. There's so many, so many loose ends that are being tied up. John then says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This is John closing out, but notice the role of the spirit and the bride saying together and anticipating the second advent of Christ. What is the implication? The spirit and the bride are both enduring this age together waiting for the coming of Christ again. What is that to say to us for endurance? We are not on our own. We are not on our own, even though it will feel like it many points in history. The Spirit of the Lord, who from the very first verses of Scripture hovered over the waters of this world, 
and brought meaning and purpose and life out of a chaotic deep now is here with us in the chaotic deep and says, someday what we both desire will come true and Christ will return again. Until then, what are we given? Instructions to remain faithful, even if it costs you everything. It is very easy to lose sight of this in history. It is very easy, especially now that empires can rise and fall in a span of a lifetime. Don't see it. Right. Peter says the same thing. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial that is going to overcome you as if something strange was happening to you. False prophets arose. False teachers will arise. The Lord has his own. At the end of the day, it is not ours to create calm times. It is ours to remain faithful. I promise you, it is a full-time job. And the Spirit is here with us throughout all of this. Now, we have gone through every reference of the Spirit in the Scriptures. And I want you to constantly see, He is the one that brings life. It will not always come in the way that we anticipate. But as the life giver... He will ensure see it to the end, even if we pass through death. This, this is why he is saying, blessed are those who die in the Lord. Why? Because he is the one who will give them life. He will raise them up again. We will see this, whatever it looks like, and however it comes to pass. I, for one, am looking forward to that, and I have my own voice to that. Come, Lord Jesus. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled to even see these descriptions. We are grateful that you have seen fit to give us these things. Lord, as we look back at the times of the apostles, we are reminded of people who considered that Christ would return in their own lifetime, and they found themselves disappointed. We are reminded of many generations of the church that have anticipated this, Father, we do not ask for clarity as to dates or times or seasons, but Father, what we do ask for is contentment and gratitude. Where you have placed us is on purpose. What empires you have us being born into and the times in which we live, these are known to your mind, and we are grateful for what things you have given to us. We thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit that indwells the church in this unique age, an age with which we are given a singular message to preach to the world, that there is coming a day on which you will judge the world in righteousness, and you've given assurance of that by raising Christ from the dead. We pray we preach this without compromise and with all boldness, especially as days grow darker. We thank you for them. We thank you for Christ. Sure.